Overthinking It Podcast, episode 36. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, we are a cross transcontinental group, uh, but let's launch right into it with our question Who watches The Watchmen? Coming in from Beantown, Peter Fenzel, who watches The Watchmen? That would be Watchmen Internal Affairs, which is led by well, but has sort of a sinister side. And you'll see more about these four. <laughs> right. And uh, also in, also yeah. in, uh, uh, beam down, Mr. David Schechner, who watches The Watchmen. Uh, I was going to say, like, covert peeping, like, Watchmen peeping Tom enthusiasts. Um, but I think it was too close to peace. Uh, so I, I do not. I, all I know is I don't watch The Watchmen. I'm sorry. Oh, really? I'm the last nerd on Earth who hasn't seen it. Have you, have you read the book? Uh, yeah, and, and I basically dream about it every night, as I have for the last 20 years. So I've basically seen it already. But uh, I star in every role. In that. You're, you're the enormously beschlonged Dr. Manhattan? I'm mostly the giant squid. Yeah. But on, on occasion, I double as Manhattan. Oh, Do- yeah. Doctors as you're gonna, Dr. Manhoodin. What, what's the, what's the like, official porn movie remake title of, or, or porn movie remake uh, character name for Dr. Manhattan? Let's, let's, uh, let's think about it. Yeah, let's overthink that. Yeah, we got to. Go around to the rest of the panel. We first. got from DC. Uh, we got Josh McNeil. It's very good to have you back. It's a pleasure to be here. It was a pleasure. Yeah, no, it was a pleasure. I actually visited Josh last week. He was kind enough to put me up. So he and I saw the Watchmen film together. It was magical. Uh, who watches the Watchmen, Josh? <laughs> uh, watch women. <laughs> uh, Yes, and uh, my answer it is I, Matthew Rather, and I. Uh, I think that you can you can know information about the location of Watchmen or about their velocity, and so really, uh, it's uncertain who watches them. Is it, it's literally every podcast I've been on, we've talked about Heisenberg at some point. Uh, I guess so. Uh, and I'm, never, I'm never the one to bring them up. That's another plate of spaghetti against the wall right there. Let, let's, let's bring this shit, man. Let, let's get some direct delta notation on this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. So uh, we have uh, a new person to introduce, and we also want to um, uh, we also want to get right into the Watchmen. But before we do, you know that this is the Overthinking It podcast. If you have anything to say, uh, you can reach us at podcast at overthinkingit.com. Or twenty eat log zero one. That's two zero three two eight five six four zero one. Thank you very much, all of you who have gone on the website and taken the very short, I think six question or something like that survey, uh, so that we can get some ads on the podcast and ruin it. Uh, if you haven't, would you go on now and do that? All right. Without any further ado, I want to get to uh, really exciting news for the first time. Really, since the very beginning of overthinking it, we are expanding our roster. We're adding a new staff writer to uh, to overthinking it. And it's a person who you've read in some of the guest posts and have admired greatly, if the feedback I'd, I've received is any indication. And so we are very, very glad to welcome uh, John on. Hey, John, how do you say your last name? Uh, correctly the first time. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, Parrot. Boom. Got served. Burned. 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 Yeah. 
I don't believe it's ever ever come up in in live conversation, so it's it's not uh, it's not ridiculous asking. It's Perich, actually. Perich. Okay. Yeah. No, I I believe this is the first time that you and I have ever actually spoken, though though we have emailed. As as human beings, one to another. Yes. Right. Exactly. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Welcome to Overthinking It. I know I said so in the email, but congratulations on winning this august and coveted uh, role. As a Join new, in our misery. The new staff writer on Overthinking It, and you've um, you've earned yourself a number of emails from me, hectoring and pleading uh, to get posts into the hopper so that they can go up on the blog. And uh, it's wonderful to have you. Has he also not? Has he not earned? Has he not earned a round of uh, applause too? Uh, all right, go for it. Let's do it. Let's let's all applaud. That's nice. Podcast listeners, that is, uh, that's five seconds of your life you will never get back. Hey, John, it's great to have you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank so you. We, have, um, we have five questions that we mm. have hazed every writer, that, except for the, the very first uh, core of writers. Uh, we've hazed every new writer with these questions. And uh, so we are going to haze you with them and, uh, you know, go ahead and answer them and we'll see where we go. So, John, what was the first yeah. album that you ever bought for yourself? And how do you feel about that music today? That's a tricky one. The first one that I can recall buying for myself, and I know this can't be accurate, but it's the only one to make an impression, is uh, The Dance by Fleetwood Mac. It was their their concert album from 1996, 7, I want to say, one of their... Okay. One of their reunion tours. It was a big deal because it was their reunion after like ten years of not speaking to each other and variety of breakups and divorces. Uh, and uh, not a big Fleetwood Mac fan today. No. Uh, well, not as big of one. Although I, I, I still find myself listening to their stuff on occasion. It's just that you know I don't really have to go far to get Fleetwood Mac. You know I can step into an elevator or purchase a sandwich at Subway, uh, and my Fleetwood Mac needs for the next, you know, three to seven weeks are pretty much filled. Right. Uh, excellent answer. What television show uh, did you mourn the most when it was canceled? Uh, this, is what, this is one I'm going to start by not answering. That, that's going to be common parlance for me. Uh I I did not mourn as much as most do uh, the canceling of either Firefly or Arrested Development. All right, you got to find another podcast, buddy. Yeah, I know. Well, no, I love Arrested Development. I, I well, think wait, it's... wait, wait. He, he he merely said that he didn't mourn it as much as most do, which means like he didn't cut himself during it. Right. Yeah. No, I still I... have the scars, but I wear each one as a badge of honor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we tried to make uh, like prison style Buster tattoos for each other. Right. But for Firefly, which is weird. All right, what was it, John? Uh, trying to uh, skin the short-lived Fox series Skin, featuring uh, Ron Silver screaming at the top of his lungs. His father is the district yes, attorney. The district attorney. <laughs> that, yeah, I got no. your back on that every time. <laughs> no, no doubt. Every you time. That was a great. Uh, that was a great pod. That was a great show. No, no, moving uh, on, moving on. I, Bam. Uh, uh, 
No, lost your chance. You have one now? Yeah, I, the, the correct answer was Firefly, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm, or the Snorks. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say The Wire, even though I think... I think the show really did run its course. I think it, I think it topped out at the right time, but I'm still, you know, I, I'm still sad. It's not on. I you, would, you were sorry. I, you were sorry to see it go. I would take the entirety of as, as much as I find him entertaining, I would take the entirety of Joss Whedon's creative output from now until his death and give that up in exchange for one more episode of the wire. Wow. Strong words from John Parrish. And if you want to, uh, if you want to argue, it's twenty eat log zero one. That's two eight three two eight five six four zero one. Tell us why. Okay. Oh wait, uh, I forgot. This is a call-in show. Oh crap. Well, or, well, or if uh, if you're Joss Whedon and you'd like to actually make good on that bet, yeah, and like and give up the entirety of your creative output for the rest of your life in exchange for the wire, this is the place to come. Or maybe Joss Whedon could just make the final episode of the wire. Wow. And make a dollhouse wire crossover. Yeah, I you know, my my show that I'm sorry is to see canceled is the slow death that dollhouse is dying. I watched the uh, it, Is it is it stillborn? Has has it gone is, on the is air? Is it already di- it's dying already? Like well, it, no, it wasn't... it's just Well, the, here's the thing about dollhouse. They're losing audience every week. In substantial wow. chunks, they're losing like 30% audience every week, but it's one of the biggest gainers when you factor in people who DVR the show and watch it in the next seven days. So within a week, uh, yeah, do the do the Nielsen ratings not take into account DVRs? No, or metered, do, is there like an asterisk? Metered Nielsen households do not take into account DVRs, but there is a different ratings agency. Uh-huh. The name escapes me at the moment. It's called something plus seven, like Air plus seven or something like that. That takes into account. <laughs> Which is also a short-lived boy band from the like late '80s, early '90s. You know you want to see who's watching your TV on the DVR. Yeah, you know that that's a band that would have a hit song that's also the name of the band. Right. Like, it's like uh, now, Air Plus Seven with their hit song, Air Plus Seven, or or uh, Soldier Boy with www.soldierboytellem.com. That's amazing. <laughs> that was incredible. Yeah, no. Um, Thank you, pop culture. Now we're we're told if you follow the the TV blogs, we're told that Firefly, not Firefly, uh, slip of the tongue, Dollhouse will get interesting round about episode six. When uh, oh good, I'm I'm glad they saved that for you know the episodes that no one will be watching. I know, right? Once that yeah, no, once they've alienated the whole audience, even the diehards. Uh, it's supposed to get really good and, and crazy, but right now it's just it's sort of just two dimensional and all. Yeah, the, we're not obligated to entertain you from day one. What are you the, talking the, about? This the, isn't television. All the, uh, you know, all the the episodes that have come before that have been kind of bland and two dimensional, you know, apparently will not uh, will not count at that point. John, what video game are or were you the best at, and what was your greatest achievement at that game? Hmm. Current generation or past two generations of consoles? Uh, ever, ever in the history ever, of your ever, video ever. game playing? Wow. Okay, that, that takes me back. Uh, Mega Man Two. I was I was really in a in a zone with, and I could I could pick that up. I I could pick that up today and still find that entertaining. Valid uh, mm. choice. Yeah, Pete, you're you're a Mega Man Two aficionado. <laughs> I love, I love Mega Man 2, Mega Man 3, to a less extent 
you know, I love Mega Man too, and uh, and Bubble Man is is uh, as and Metal Man has one of the cool, coolest uh, video video game stage ambiance. But I will let John continue to talk about the video games choice. Yeah. I'm just all to think about anything else like a car warrior. Why would anyone say that? That would be crazy. Yeah. Uh... Mega, Man, Mega Man Two. I found I found particularly. I thought the soundtrack was particularly exciting, which is a kind of weird thing to say about, you know, 8-bit MIDI from 1987-ish. But, uh, but yeah, I was, I was, I was really engaged with it and it was, it was challenging, but not in a way that constantly frustrated me as, as say Final Fantasy, the original one did, uh, which, which led me to breaking several pieces of furniture in the, the Parrish family basement. Uh, but Mega Man Two, you know, it it challenged you and then it rewarded you for for your accomplishment. Yeah. yeah. Uh, John, what movie will you? Oh, I'm echoing somewhere. I think that's you, John. Yep. What movie will you always watch all the way through whenever it is on television? Uh, that's that's pretty much Jaws or. I would say Jaws or Shawshank, but I could walk away from Shawshank at this point. Definitely Jaws now. I think you can't get a little too much redemption in prison. Hey, uh, <laughs> And uh, finally, uh, the fifth question is always tailored to the particular, the particular person. And to you, I want to ask this. Who is the hero of The Wired? Hmm. This is the I, only this is the only one that we did not wait uh, that we did not prepare you for. This is the only one that you didn't have. So you you get a second to think of it. The the other one yeah. When you say the wired, are you speaking uh, in amusing new internet speak about the wire, or do you actually mean like the technology magazine? No, the wired, the technology magazine. Uh, did I really say that? No, I meant the wire. Yeah. Oh, damn it. David Simon's uh, David Simon's five season masterpiece on HBO. I had this whole shtick about Laura Schoenberg and you know his great editorials going and. All yeah, right, well. no, it was Bruce Sterling in the early, uh, you know, in like the first <laughs> and second on the future of war. Bruce Sterling, that was I think. Oh, yeah. uh, that yeah, was that's some solid stuff. That He's was the vo- hero. volume one episode, uh, volume one issue one of. See, of I think war. I think B Stroke Twenty Seven and his constant, you know, civil liberties angle regarding you know the encroachment on technology. He's he's really heroic in the current issues. Yeah, even when he's just asked to like review, you know, a network attacked hard drive. Yeah, it's kind of like. Cicero saying Carthago de Lenda Est at the end of every speech that he ever gave. Like, you know, guys, uh, it's exactly like that. We, re- we really have to uh, we really have to do something about the problem with the sewers and the aqueduct. Carthago de Lenda Est. That's his that's his piece out. You know, that's just the way he tags things. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, John, here are the wired. Well, it's funny, and here comes the segue. Um, uh, the shorthand definition I've always had for what is a hero in any work of art is, you know, the person who does the right thing at the right time for the right reason. I, I bring this up because I was talking about noir with someone recently, like film noir, uh, and you know, using that definition of a hero, the the anti-hero in noir is pick two out of three. So it's either the 
someone doing the right thing for the right reason, but at the wrong time, or the right thing at the right time, but for the wrong reason. And I, I lay all that out there because I don't think The Wire has a hero. I think it has nothing but anti-heroes. You've got the, you know, immensely self-centered Jimmy McNulty, the kind of guy who in season three, I think it is, will, will say something like, quote, fuck loyalty, close quote, and mean it. Um, you've got, you know, you've got Omar on the other side of the street who's, you know, an engaging character but not heroic by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, you've got various suffering and conspiring people on the on the drug trade, but we can't re- really call them heroes as much as we can call them sympathetic. Uh, so I'm I'm going to say there's there's not a not a hero in in my definition or in what I think is the classical sense of the wire. They're all t- they're all too flawed. Yes, they're all too which human. is which is what makes it good. Well, it does. It. I. I agree with you. I agree with you. It is good. Uh, all right. Well, good. John, it's it's wonderful to have you on. All right. Let's let's get into the meat of what we are here uh, for. We watched The Watchmen this weekend, or at least Josh and I did. Pete, did you? Did you? Oh, I think we. Yes, have, I came oh, back from it just a few minutes ago. Just, just so it's you're still Pete, can you hear me? Dewey from Battle. No. Yeah, it's all fresh in my mind. I've I've got. Imaged blue schlong dancing in my head. <laughs> <laughs> giant, giant iridescent blue schlong. Uh, well, exactly. are, were you a fan? So everyone's read the book, but me, right? And then everyone mm-hmm. has seen the movie, but John and Shackner. I got that right. Mm-hmm. That's uh, correct. Yeah. Well, um, so Yarp. I mean, Pete, were you like a real aficionado of it? What'd you think? Uh, I've read the times. And I do really love it. I think it's a wonderful piece of literature. And I saw the movie, and I like the movie. I explained it to Dave a little earlier. I think it's an about the same movie Troy, which I also liked. And it is a tribute to and a, and a love letter to a great work of literature that is made using a bunch of that great work of literature, perhaps a bunch of the lines from that great work of literature, takes the characters from that great work of literature turn the mirror and then once it does all that and the rest of it is sort of unrelated to the work of literature and it won't make the structure it won't take a lot of the aesthetic value it has its own value and most importantly it misses a lot the two big things for me about the watchman movie are that it totally misses the point on the structure of the watchman book uh, it's a new try which i guess is kind of Maybe if you handled it, maybe it's a smart move to make a watchable movie, a more, more watchable movie. Uh, but there, most of the aesthetic value that's in Watchmen is structure. And it misses a lot because of that. And it, and it feels hostile because the structure is very loose. Uh, and, and the other thing is this is so much good stuff that you, you can't really be super happy with it if you're a big enthusiast for the book. Because it just it, it probably gets about 20% of the material that's in book the screen, if that. Um, and that's a lot of that stuff is really important and really good. And some of the changes are like, meh, not like, oh my god, it's so horrible. Because, um, you know, kind of me for director. Uh, he, he makes a very specific sort of product. So once he makes it, uh, like, oh man, you know, like, freaking 300 and starts at the Battle of Thermopylae, you know, 
you deal with it, you want to enjoy it, and you move on with your life. Hey, Pete, I'm going to get you back on your. I'm going to get you back on. Uh, well, I enjoyed the movie, but I have I have no dog in this race. I'm going to get you back on your cell phone, okay? Because you're still breaking up. All right, my cell phone on. I'm going to go try to turn it on. This is immensely frustrating. Uh-huh. So, so I mean, do do other people largely agree with the bits of of Pete's argument that that were intelligible? Well, yeah, let's, <laughs> let that that a it misses a great deal. That like only twenty percent of what was in the book actually made it into the movie, uh, and that on the other hand, because um, I'm wondering that, if this is one of these examples where like. Uh, and I think they're, well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'll put it out to the general crowd. Like, is this the sort of thing that would have worked better as, like, an HBO miniseries? You know, something with, like, a big budget, but that can like, afford to take its time over, like, six hours? Or is it is it, as many people have said over the course of 20-some-odd years, just, like, untransferable between the media that it was originally published in and the media that you're trying to bring it to? It would have been better as an HBO miniseries, but it wouldn't have made $70 million in a weekend, so that seems un- unlikely to have ever happened. I actually had the opposite reaction from Pete. I-, I thought I was routinely excited that they'd gotten so much in. Uh, every few minutes I was like, wow, I can't believe they actually had time to fit that scene in uh, again and again and again. I was I was really kind of had just a complete opposite reaction. Well, they, they had time because it was like a, a three-hour movie. Yeah, but you know, it's a book that takes ten hours to read. It's a uh, it's, it's as as Pete was saying, it's just a, a tremendously dense piece of literature. Yeah, it does. I am and, I have just started it recently, and I am like I find that I could spend like five minutes just on a page. I feel like for some of the panels, you could spend five minutes on a panel just reading all the detail and things like that. Well, and not to mention all of the non traditional comic book format material that are in it. Right there, the um, the sort of uh, issue bookends that are, you know, bits of, of um, Rorschach's dossier or, like, bits of the unpublished um, biography on the Minutemen that are just flat-out a straight-up novel, you know, or, or the, the, the pirate uh, comic book where it's, you know, just big blocks of text um, that was very much, like, structure-changing for the, for the era, for the mid-'80s, right? So, and I, so I'm told that um, when it comes out on DVD... There'll be an entire separate DVD release that's an animated feature that tries to bring to screen the um, the pirate comic book that that's yeah, book gonna ends a, the Yeah, it's going to be a special feature, right? No, I, I think you actually have to buy a separate DVD. I, I think it's its own thing. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, there uh, you go. It shows you what I know. They'll, they'll extract extract more money from us, I imagine. Right. Or they'll try. God bless them. They'll try. Huh. Well, yeah, that, I mean, in a way, you know, film is more, is a more detailed medium than, uh, uh, film is a more detailed medium than the comics, right? Uh, What do you mean? Well, yeah, uh, because there's just more, you know, the camera, the camera is moving and the scope of the world that's being shown to you is, uh, you know, is greater. If you're tracking down a street, there's a great deal more just because you're not focusing on one uh, on one still image. Though there were, I mean, I've already, in just beginning to read the book, I'm already seeing frames that are directly lifted uh, out of the book. And then there are some very, like, there are some very good um, good references. Like one, one uh, dinner scene at a restaurant is rendered, you know, through three square windows from the outside looking in at three square windows. 
kind of like they were three comic book panels set up together. And I think that these are, are interesting visual touches. But the second you start to move the camera, there's a whole um, there's a whole other level of detail because the world gets a lot bigger. And, uh, you know, it's not representational or at least it's not representational in the same way. It's a photograph of an actual thing that is that has to have. You know, you can't draw two circles and those be the eyes. They have to be eyes. You know, the co the costumes have to have textured. I would I would take the opposite tack and say that we, or say that you lose some ability to 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 add detail when you go from comic book to screen, simply because and Watchmen I think is is the emblematic example of this. Uh, Watchmen, you know, rewards that sort of obsessive level of study. You can study a frame, you can pick it apart and find uh, find hidden details like band posters and, you know, blood stains and Ozymandias action figures and things like that. And you don't have that luxury in film. In film, you know, the frame has to be centered on, you know, the action at the moment. And there can be stuff in the background that will be rewarding if, you know, your attention wanders but not everyone's going to get that. That's those are there were lots of like little Easter eggs for the for the true fans, right? Yeah, I'd also I mean I totally agree with what John's saying and I'd also say that you you have the added difficulty, you know, because I mean you're right in in Matt in the sense that like you're adding a third dimension by giving it literal movement, but a that requires some time to take, you know, in a in a comic book or in a bit of text you can just jump from place to place, and so long as you do it craftfully enough, you know, the audience will follow along with you. Whereas there's this sort of, like, assumption on the part of a moviegoer that there's some sort of um, context, there's some reality to things that they're seeing. Right. As, as you point out. And so, so you can get, you're sort of, as a movie maker then, obligated to, to support that enough right. that, um, that, that people will follow you along. Yeah, exactly. So that, you, you know, know, hey, Pete, just uh, while you were away, we were talking about whether, like, the the relationship between the level of detail in a comic book, which is sort of stripped down and representational uh, versus a film, makes it, you know, we were trying to speak to the question of uh, that you raised about how much from the book makes it into the film. And were you, I mean, were you talking about detail, the kind of obsessive detail of the world? I was actually talking more about the um, actual subtextual uh, elements that take place uh, in the book because of the relationship with the different characters and also stories that they tell. Um, I guess what you could say is that the movie has a lot more detail than the book does because the images, each image in the movie has so much more information than the book has. But, for example, the story of how Rorschach's mask came about isn't in the movie. I mean, spoiler, it's not in the movie. They don't tell that story. Right. It's kind of really important to his character. Um, and, it, it, you know, it's, it, that's not a Tom Bombadil situation where, you know, like the Tales for the Black Freighter, where that's also not in the movie, spoiler alert. Um, and I understand why they cut it, because it would be a really huge departure from the acceptable form that they're looking for. Um, but there's just not – it's both the things that they are in the book that are material, not just, you know, details that are present in the drawings or present in the juxtaposition of the panels. Um, and then also um, material and information that emerges because of the way that the things in the book are related to one another. 
You know, yeah. so the famous book, book five of Watchmen is not even attempted to be replicated or imitated or even expressed in the movie at all. Huh. And now, I'm not the only one who knows this story, right? You guys know about book five? That's the fearful symmetry, right? Right, right, right. I mean, you guys talked about it last week, or I don't want to go over it again if we belabor the point. Go for it, Pete. Okay, so the way that this works, and Alan Moore is described. And we lost Pete. Okay, we're going to try and get him back for you. Uh, but, Josh, I don't know. Is, is there something maybe that you can say about it? Yeah, sure. Chapter 5, um, both thematically and literally, is perfectly symmetrical from beginning to end. The The last panel looks like the first panel and all the way through to the middle. And it's kind of the Rorschach origin story. Is it, is it like backwards? Is it the last panel looks like the first panel but backwards? <laughs> I mean, it's not, you know, it's not exact, but it's the same themes appear, the same characters appear. It's just, it's kind of an amazing work of art, really, that, that it's a story with a beginning, middle, and end that is at the same time, like, completely reciprocal. It's, sure, well, how would you do pretty I mean, amazing. It's, it's difficult to, to think even how it would happen in a, uh, in a film. Well, yeah, the way that you would do it is you would intercut the two different sequences that happen. And it's the sequence of Rorschach going to see, uh, getting cornered at Moloch's place and the assassination attempt on Adrian Weiss, right? So you intercut between those two sequences as they're happening, sort of recognition moments at the same time, and then you watch them diverge separately from each other. It would have to be really terse, and you'd have to move the camera much more, um, much more informatively uh, in sort of pointing out the different viewpoints, looking at different objects from the same perspective, than Zack Snyder ever really does. Um, his camera work tends to be pretty flat. Um, he doesn't really tend to communicate a lot of information based on what he's looking at. They tend to do the work afterwards, right, in adding the abs and adding all of the over-saturated color and all that stuff. He tends to, to big, big canvases with big pictures, and that doesn't lend itself well to a, a story like that um, where what you're watching is as important as, as you know, what's happening. Why are you watching this moment as opposed to this other moment? You know, what, what's the information included in why you're looking at this thing and then that thing? Um, it, it, it's in a saturated style. It doesn't work as well. Yeah, it's, well, the, I mean, let's talk about Snyder's camera because it's a, it was a very particular thing, I thought. There was a theatricality to it. I mean, the word you used, I guess, was flat. And I thought that a great deal of it appeared staged, which seems yeah. appropriate for a comic book. Uh in that, like, it's it's sort of set up there for you to look at and you sort of examine the pieces one at a time. But there was almost a, a sort of clinical aspect to the to the camera where you didn't really feel like the camera was engaging in the story or was a uh, a partner in telling the story. It was more that the camera was looking, it just happened to be there and the story was playing out in front of it theatrically. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say the Watchmen comic book, the art is of a fairly elemental variety. It's not particularly ornate. You know, it's very simple. Um, but the it's definitely not a flat eye that's looking well, but, at it. But know, the, the a, art is, yeah. yeah, I think the art is, is also trying to achieve that sort of, you know, looking backward while looking forward uh, 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 angle that the, the book as a whole is taking, right? Like It's evocative of the sort of um, very mainstream coloring particularly but also you know form drawing that you have in like the thoughtless sort of bang them up superhero comic books that that flooded most of the market before it like the idea is to draw a comic book that looks like a typical superhero comic book 
but the content in it is really anything but. Mm-hmm. I don't know, that's what I always took from it. Well, it seems like, yeah, it's kind of an homage. I mean, it's not, it's a revision of that world, but using the, the or a revision of that form, but using the tools of that form, right? It, it's, it's the Beatles of comic books. Yeah. I'm not going to elaborate yeah. <laughs> by, by which there's you... like a lot of shot, you know, a lot of panels of a puddle on the ground, footsteps in puddle, you know, like ripple in puddle afterwards. You know, that's, that happens a lot in the comic book. So it's not just look at this character talking, look at that character talking. There's a lot of elements like that that would translate well to film, except for the the, the way that they're juxtaposed um, doesn't. I, don't know. I was thinking about this. The comic book uses a lot of what um, Scott was Scott McCloud refers to as closure, where there are big gaps between um, one thing that's said and another thing that's said in terms of what has happened between them. And the, your mind has to make up a lot of the room and, and a lot of the action. It doesn't show a lot of the movement. Um, there's a lot of sort of static people talking, and then you assume what has happened between them. And I think in interpreting these things literally, when you do a movie like Sin City or like 300, you're doing Frank Miller movie, he's telling stories that lend themselves very well to that sort of depiction. But for now, Watchmen, you really want to see those people walking around. You want to see those people talking to each other. And the staticness of it, I think, really takes away from the sense that this is supposed to be fairly realistic. You know, um, these are supposed to be, you know, relatively realistic, a relatively realistic interpretation within the medium that it's using to talk about the issues of the day. But it's a, well, it's an alternate universe, though, right? It's not, it's not sort of there for its verisimilitude. It's kind of like Gotham City in that it comments on New York uh you know yeah, i guess i mean naturalistic naturalistic rather than realistic uh-huh sure yeah yeah well but it's natural i'm gonna push back a little because it's naturalism of a of a certain type i think it owes a lot to uh films noir or to the hard-boiled detective fiction of the 40s say like Dashiell Hammett or Raymond Chandler or that that kind of thing. And it seems like Ro- Shana's joke on Twitter today was that that Rorschach talks like a uh, like a Twitter post, but he really talks like a, a hard boiled detective, sort of noir anti hero, right? Yeah, I think, that, I think that that was a little lazy. I don't think he had to do it that way. I think that he used the noir conceits because they fit well with the kind of storyboarding that he was doing. I think that you could have loosened it up a little bit, and it probably would have been a bit better. Who are you? Are you talking about Snyder? I'm talking about Snyder's interpretation of Watchmen specifically. Yeah, I think that the noir interpretation works great for uh, him and 300, and for Robert Rodriguez and Sin City. I don't think it works as well for Watchmen. Right? Yeah, it was perfect. That... It was it was perfect for Sin City. Yeah, yeah. And the kind of I don't know. What do you? Josh is a Sin City enthusiast. I guess we lost Josh. Oh, uh, no worries. Then. I thought that it kind of worked for Rorschach. I thought that what they did in the movie was actually less sort of broken up and st- and choppy than what's than his dialogue in the in the book. Hmm. Um, in the book, he's using all kinds of just you know sentence fragment, noun, verb. You know, it's 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 it would have been completely distracting to do it. I thought the kind of the natural sort of. Uh, softening of that ended up being the sort of noirish talk that he ended up with, and I thought it worked for him. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. he was probably the best character in the in the movie by far. That's true. I he was pretty good. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was when he was on screen. You were watching him, and the stuff in the prison was just fantastic. Yeah, that so, was really. I agree. That stuff was great. 
Um, I, I had no complaints on him. I, my my bigger complaints came from uh, I thought Dreberg was too cool for school. Uh, the in, in the book, he's a lot lamer, and I think that makes him a better character. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a lot of people have been complaining about Silk Spectre, whose name I can't remember as an actor, actress, but um, I didn't find her nearly as bad as others did. That was, oh, in, the, the, that was in the reviews, right? Yeah. Yeah, I he's thought she in... was really bad. What was bad? Just... She, what was bad? Oh, she gave really wooden line readings. I felt like she just she didn't enter her character until she was three or four seconds into a scene, and in a Zack Snyder film, that means he says she's never really acting on camera. <laughs> she looks pretty and she looks the part, but I felt like her her character lacked pretty much any active engagement. She wasn't very present in the, the interpretation that she was giving. It did seem like you know in in the her like climactic realization there on Mars, it did seem. Um... Uh, yeah, it did seem like a little by the numbers to me. Like, I, I didn't feel like I think that that moment is supposed to have a great deal of emotional heft. And so I felt like she didn't do it for me. And so so uh, Dr. Manhattan then didn't do it for me in his decision to come back. Mm. Yeah. What did you think of What about Dr. Manhattan? Right. What What about this kind of like bored, disaffected, detached uh, line reading from Billy Crudup. Um, I thought he did a pretty good job. I thought that it was a pretty cool interpretation of that character. Um, he was on screen a lot. Uh, there's large portions of, I think, the book where he kind of disappears. I guess he does that sometimes in the movie, but this was kind of, I think that Zack Snyder seemed most interested in the character of Dr. Manhattan, at least, you know, in terms of how much attention he brought to him and how much he put on him, how much of the weight of the story Dr. Manhattan carries. Um, he, more he's than the he character whose who's abs you see the most of, so that's clearly that's like true. a natural element for Snyder, right? <laughs> well, they yeah, rewrote the end to make it about him. Yeah, they did. That's exactly right. Um, and in fact, they, the one change that they made that I really didn't like um, was, uh, and maybe this is just me subjectively, but someone else who can read the book and corroborate me on this, and this is a big spoiler, so close your ears for like 20 seconds if you don't want to hear it. When... Man. Rorsch, when, when Rorschach yells at Dr. Manhattan near the very, very end, um, and there's this defiance, right, in, in the book, character of the book, and in the character of the movie, he's crying, right? He's sort of like submitting to Dr. Manhattan in, in, a, in a different way, and then, whereas in the book, he's, he's daring him. You know, he, the he's book, defying he's the last. No, he's what? definitely crying in the book, and, and I yeah, think he's submitting... It's a moment of submission in the book, but it's not to um, to Manhattan per se. It's to the fact that that he's entered into a situation that completely conflicts with his morality, and yet he he recognizes that like it's something that he has to do. And so he's basically like he comes to the realization that he can't live in this world anymore. That this is not a place that that he can feel happy in or or feel whatever his equivalent of happiness is. Right? Yeah, I don't know. I, even though there are tears, I never really thought in the book he had that level of resignation. I thought he held on to the end, but maybe that was just me. Well, that's the thing. I mean, that that was the thing about his character is that he's kind of this like never compromise, never surrender sort of guy. Yeah, he he believes in the truth. You know that that's it. That's all that matters to him. And this is a situation where like the safety of the world is dependent upon a lie. Mm-hmm. So and a giant squid. Please God, tell me they kept the squid. No squid. 
Damn you, Snyder! Had had you not heard that? That was all over the. No, the... no, I, I totally heard that. The, the squid, yeah, the, the squid is the uh, is the end song of of uh, Watchmen. Yeah, no, it was it was bad that that they didn't have the end song. I really like the ends were some of my favorite bits from the Lord of the Rings. Arc. Please, please read a, read us some if you would. <laughs> The squid is the Tom Bombadillo of the uh, of the Watchmen movie. Boom, 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 boom! I want you in my room. <laughs> <laughs> so who when... watches the Venga Boys? Who watches the Venga Boys? <laughs> no one. The Venga, the, Venga Boys. the Venga Girls, I guess. Uh yeah, that was great. That was great when pop music was. Uh, that was great when pop music was still good. Who was it that sent? Someone sent to the overthinking at writers list a um, uh, oh sometime in the last week uh, a list of like the top pop songs of of nineteen ninety nine or something like that and the top or yeah that was me I sent that over yeah that was great by the way. Pete, I mean, number one was Believe. I think number two was Baby One More Time. Though Baby One More Time is a far superior song to Believe. It really is. Oh yeah, by any, by even serious, by even serious standards of quality. If you take but Believe, Believe is definitely groundbreaking in in the use of like the post production electronic vocoder effect, which has now become like how you sing in an R and B song. De, right? Yeah, de rigueur. In uh, yeah. in R and B, yeah, that, that's the same Quanon. Well, that, you know, like uh, baby one more time, maybe one more time. Really pioneered new ground in pronouncing the word "me" as "may." Okay, I'll I'll, I'll concede that. The, you know, the trouble with everyone going on mute when is that I, I don't hear you laugh at my funny jokes. I know you all. That, I know you that all. That must be the explanation as to why. I know you all <laughs> laughed at my funny uh, joke. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> it's lonely out there in LA, isn't it? Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, no. My my my, fl- my flight was delayed like three hours this morning. I, I considered going back to Josh's and crashing on his couch. You should have. Yeah, probably. I could have gotten back. I actually probably could have gotten back on the train before you got back in your car. Almost certainly true. Want yeah. to bring up a costuming point? Okay. Sort of this comparison about the flight, or yes, um, Matt should not have worn the costume he wore on the flight. Now, the um, many many comments have been made on the internet about the garter belts that feature so prominently in in this movie, and I just kind of on a whim looked through Watchmen. There are no garter belts in the book, so I think that's that's clearly Snyder's telling us something there. About uh, you know holding up society, I think this is what I meant about a level of detail in a film, right? That if you you know you just don't draw them if you're drawing it in a book, but if you have to do it in a movie, like the stockings have to be held up by something, so there have to be garter belts, and like those decisions have to be made, and that you know because you actually have to really stage it. At least you stage the part of it that's directly in front of the camera, and you fill in the rest with chroma key. But the uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, th- I think I think that that was probably true before CGI. But I mean, like you're talking about a movie where one of the characters doesn't actually appear on screen for the majority of his role, right? Like he could have rendered those stockings in post. Well, yeah, I guess. I mean, I guess so. I think that there's a, a you know, they were 
filmed. I mean, it was, you know, they weren't CGI stockings, but like. I, the, no, 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 I'm saying, I'm saying little, like, if, if, you're, if you're saying that he's using garter belts for technical reasons, that there's like the, the reality of having to film something versus just being able to draw it. Um, I say that that's really not much of a reality anymore. Like you can add pretty much anything you want or take away any other thing that you want that you don't want in, in post these days. Right. Well, that's that's true. Um, my point is that if you're going to put the person in a costume, you have to like imagine a lot of details of the costume that are not necessarily uh, not really necessary if you're just going to draw it. Yeah, but at the same time, like it, you know, Rorschach's uh, epaulette, his left epaulette in both the book and the movie is like come unbuttoned and is sticking up throughout both. And they they clearly, you know, someone thought about that and some intern had to like starch it so it stood up through the whole movie. So I don't think I don't think it was an accident. I think they were like they felt the need to really sex up the the women characters, which was odd because really by far the worst part of the movie was the sex. Yeah, well, that was ridiculous. And I thought the mu- I thought the music choice there was was pretty awful. They did it to uh, uh, oh, spoiler alert! They did it to Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. That was ridiculous. Which is just like uh, what was it? Was it the Times, Josh? You you found an article where the Times is calling for a, a moratorium on recordings of Hallelujah uh, used at climactic moments in movies. I mean, for God's sake, Shrek did it. Yeah, they 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 call for a full stop on the use of the song. It's a shame because I like the song and it's from a Leonard Cohen album called Various Positions that I like a lot. That is, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, but hey, when they have sex, they have sex in various positions. Maybe that's what they were trying to reference. I I think if the... Sorry. It probably would have been more interesting and also more relevant to this subject matter of, you know, the whole Nixonian era if they'd had sex to Leonard Cohen's Democracy is Coming. <laughs> or Everybody Knows or something. You know? Or Everybody Knows, yeah. yeah. It'd yeah. also be a little weird. Everybody. Really? Because that's what I, that's, uh, you know, my makeup music. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. All right, moving on. <laughs> I'm laughing at your jokes, Matt. Thank you. Well, yeah, no, everyone else is on mute, so you don't you don't hear the you don't hear the laughter. I, I actually well, no, I I unmuted I myself. I thought we seriously were moving on from you know the discussion <laughs> about the artful lyrics of Leonard Cohen to you know the the costume details of Watchmen. Let's have a let's have a little discussion about the artful lyrics of Leonard Cohen because the man is truly a genius. I think he's I think he's going on tour again. Hey, for people who don't know who he is, can you give like the ten second summary? Leonard Cohen is a a uh, kind of folk singer songwriter uh, who was who was just an especially good lyricist. He was big in the in the seventies in the kind of singer songwriter uh, movement, and like, he had sort of a, like Elvis Costello kind of stuff. Or sure, I think he's a better songwriter than Elvis Costello is. Uh, but he wrote that song, Hallelujah, you know, that is that has been covered a million times and, and now is used in in every movie. I think it's kind of the huh. law that if you have a sort of bloated, you know, bombastic movie, it has to feature a recording of Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen. And I think the reason for that is, you know, people it, Leonard Cohen's not exactly mainstream. So like people who are somewhat familiar with music will be like oh he's an obscure choice you know no one's gonna get this you know right exactly yeah no we spent a lot of money and we hired chris doritas or we hired 
uh, oh, who's the other guy? T-Bone Burnett, right, as the music supervisor, you know, and they put their iPod on shuffle and found some obscure shit for the soundtrack of our movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is why they, in the sequel, they make love to Captain Beefheart. Right, exactly. <laughs> There's... Captain I don't know what that is. See, they unmute for me, rather. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, I, I want to say, like, if there is a moratorium on the Leonard Cohen Hallelujah, can I just like put out the call now that it's go time for recordings of Ray Charles's Hallelujah, I love her so. Do it in the exact same spot, you know, at the funeral scene. Making love for the last time before you go out to war. Just right. a really upbeat. Hallelujah. Look, I love yeah, exactly. Looking mournfully into the mirror as you, you know, contemplate oh, it, your own mortality. It's, and it started raining. Oh, God, the rain. Can't they just have the sex to Ray Charles's America the Beautiful? That would be great. <laughs> I, I know I do. <laughs> All the time. Bi-weekly. It is a really slow That's song, so it helps question. with the pacing. Exactly. It, you know, right, I just right. think of Ray Charles and I can perform all night. Close <laughs> it down. Uh, oh, God, man, you know, God rest his soul. Yeah, that's true. If we can actually get possible. back, if no, we can actually no, get Jack, back we, to costuming, we cannot get back to anything that is remotely on topic. Yes, go ahead. No, okay. <laughs> one of the one of the things I noticed, and this might be a tangent or might lead somewhere interesting, is I've. I've always had a bit of an issue with the way superhero costumes are depicted on screen. And I don't know if this says anything about, you know, the, the failure of film or the inherent ridiculousness of superhero costumes that they just don't translate well to real life. But I think in the case of Watchmen, it was particularly exemplified by uh, uh, Malin Agerman as Silk Spectre's costume. Cause there's this, this shot, you know, we all see in the trailer of her, you know, descending, I think what are the prison steps or the apartment steps or whatever those stairs are in her old Silk Spectre costume. And I, I can't see that without thinking that the way that it's cut between her legs, that it would be absolutely ridiculous to get in a fight in. Like that's not the kind of thing. That's not the kind of thing that someone who fights for a living would wear and be comfortable in. Yeah. They, they, they'd wear Chuck Norris action jeans, which is what people really wear. Which, yes, which is what the professional brawlers wear. Or, I don't know. But it says on the label. Something that doesn't automatically ride up every time you lift your knee higher than your, your hip, I guess. I don't know. John, well, I think you're, you're absolutely right. Better. You're absolutely right, but to, to single Watchmen out for that, I think, is a bit unfair. Like, every superhero... Oh, eminently true. Oh, that's, that's entirely true. Watchmen was just the most recent glaring example. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to say... Teenage... Try and call me on this. Like, what do you think about Spider-Man? I, I think Spider-Man, it kind of works for me. There was never a point where I, I saw the costume and was like, oh, that's just ridiculous. Right, the same thing, you I, know what, the same thing with Superman. He's like wearing a, you know, a rather form-fitting tracksuit. Yeah, yeah, with his undies on the outside. Exactly. Well, the, yeah, no, this is actually an interesting bit in Watchmen, uh, in the book about that, that, that doesn't really show up in the movie. It's, it's hinted at, but there's a character named Dollar Bill who's killed because the the corporation that designs his suit puts a cape on it, and the cape gets caught in a revolving door. He gets caught and shot in the face. Um, <laughs> Which is actually it's a that, major yeah. plot point in The Incredibles, right? Is it? Uh, have have yeah, people the, not the seen The Incredibles? Design, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, I haven't, like, but I hear, I hear like great, great things about it. Like, it's one of the, the top-tier Pixar movies. 
that that movie wastes no time. Every, every single moment of that is just so beautifully executed. I'm a big fan of it. I really like I would, it quite a lot. I would put Incredibles up there as the as prior to the Dark Knight, uh, the best superhero movie. I mean, regardless yeah. of an, regardless of animation, the best movie at yeah. getting the superhero. Are you concept. sure? Superman two, Neil before Zod, uh, Neil before Zod. <laughs> I, I think I, actually, like the Incredibles and the Dark Knight ha- have, in a, in a weird sense, quite a lot in common, in that they're both sort of like commentaries on their own genre, right? I mean, Incredibles has been more upfront about it, but Dark Knight is is a response to all that's come before it, as much as the Incredibles is. Y'all need to watch some Adam West Batman, because that, that shit is the bomb. Yeah, <laughs> I do. It's, it's, it's a long bomb sequence, actually. <laughs> that you know, bomb sequence is one of my favorite sequences ever. It's like his analog for his sexual tension with Robin. You know what? <laughs> you know what? It's great. He's carrying a bomb, and he runs around, and he like tries to throw it one place, but there's a baby. And then he tries to throw it to another place, but there's a bunch of nuns. And then he and finally gets bed. to where Robin is, and he's able to successfully discharge the bomb. Uh, and like everyone is relieved, he manages to like throw it over the side or something. Right. So there's the you know. That. So what what he's saying is that his his latent homosexuality is opposed by the societal pressure of heteronormativity, as uh, represented by the baby, which represents procreation and heterosexuality, or by an oppressive religious structure, uh, which is represented by the nuns. And I'll just point out that the oppression uh, comes from women, so that they are like the bad other. You know, but, to, but, but Matt, what, what about the inexplicable dockside Oompa Oompa marching band that he also can't throw the bomb on? I'm totally serious. This is major. No, I love They're wearing it. seersucker suits. Yeah, yeah. You don't even understand. I loved this film. I had it on VHS and I watched it again and again and again and again. I have it on DVD, man. We should, we, should, we should all watch this every single day before going to work. Yeah. And, and, and during work. <laughs> Let's quit our jobs. Just watch this. <laughs> we we can make a living off that, right? Well, there's yes. you, know, yeah. you know, there's something to be said for the Adam Westbrook Ward Batman series being a commentary on Batman that had come before because, you know, from its origins as a in, in a kind of very dark place, Batman I guess had kind of joined the the mainstream of 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 rah-rah superhero comics, hadn't it, by by that point? And then it's kind of like, well, it's become camp, so we're going to make this extremely campy television it's, show. It's actually, it. it's kind of funny. I read an essay about this years ago, and I'll be damned to remember who wrote it, but it was it was about, like, the, the history of Batman's, the, the Batman as, an, as a work of literature, its relationship with campiness. And, like, the move into camp was a very conscious choice. And a lot of it, ironically enough, was, like, meant to be a response to the growing um, controversy about whether or not Batman um, was encouraging uh, homosexual behavior. Um, you know, a pedophilic homosexual behavior specifically. And they thought that, like, if you made it uh, incredibly cartoonish, so, so like, laughably... Uh, unrepresentational un- of, um, of true human emotion uh, as to make it totally unbelievable, then maybe children would no longer interpret um, this relationship that Batman and Robin have as being any way sexual. And I think, ironically, what they ended up creating was this work which is so fantastically gay. Um, <laughs> you know. Sorry. That yeah, no, I, 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 uh, that's what I was going for. It's a, but, I mean, do people disagree? Yeah, no, that, that's, where I, that's what I get from it. But anyway. I was kind of funny that that was like their their intention. They were specifically making it campy to try and make it less gay. 
I mean, it certainly makes it hard to say, oh, man, as a child, I totally want to have a relationship like that with a grown man. Um, but I don't know if that was what they were going for either. Um, no, I mean, obviously, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, I think very deliberate to ask us, you know, the leather couches. Yeah. All that. For the bat pole. <laughs> so, um, so Watchmen, fifty-five point seven million uh, is, I guess, the estimate. Wow. Um, but uh, yeah, lower than expectations, but still the best opening of the year and one of the best showings ever for an R-rated film, and also tops overseas, where it's the first major day and date release of two thousand nine. I'm reading from Variety. Uh, about twenty-seven and a half million. So worldwide total of over eighty million for for this movie. I guess it's it's kind of naive at this point to ask whether these films deserve these grosses. It was kind of a fore, foregone conclusion, right? Well, Matt, as you well, and I discussed, the uh, the movie tickets at this point cost less than the eleven dollars I spent on a medium popcorn and a bottle of water. Yeah, so but, I'm perfectly happy to pay for the entertainment. But your movie ticket, which I, by the way, bought for you, was yeah, uh, well. <laughs> was um, <laughs> speaking of latent <laughs> homosexuality. I'll, 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 I'll unmute to laugh at that. <laughs> uh, the the movie ticket was not that much less than that. It was like eleven bucks to see or ten fifty or something to see a movie in Washington D.C., uh, which is the unkindest cut of all. I don't know. I don't know really what the the conclusion is there, or is it? I mean, I guess if it had really sucked, and you know, I guess we're saying that even the super aficionados of the book say it didn't really suck. It was like a just a totally okay time out at the movies, right? Pete? Oh, yeah. I, I, mean, read I think the, that... Or Josh. Or sorry, Josh, you, you jumped in first. Go ahead. No, Pete, go for it. Oh, I, I think it's good product. You know, I think that in terms of being a commercial movie, I think he hit all the notes right. I think it's got stuff in it that's going to attract a relatively broad array of audience. Um, I think that to the extent that it departs from the source material in undesirable ways, it largely does it in order to be appealing and commercially successful, and not in a, in a really insulting kind of way, not in the way that, like, oh, we need to make this movie really, really idiotic and retarded so that monk boys can watch it. Um, <laughs> that was very offensive to me to say. But more like, okay, we need to have more action sequences. We need to make the characters really sexy so they'll market well. You know, we're going to have a visual style that really pops, makes it feel like an event film. I mean, you can practically hear the conference calls that went on while this movie was being made. So I would say it deserves commercial success because as a commercial endeavor, it appears to have been a synthesis of the work of a lot of different sorts of people. And, you know, great. Um, and yet, and yet that, don't, you have yeah. a, don't you have a response to it that it, like, it could have been so much worse? You know, they could. I re- I, yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, totally. It could have been so bad. Oh my God. It could have been League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Exactly. Or V for yeah. Vendetta or, or From Hell or any of the, you know, the uh, comic book adaptations that have just kind of screwed the pooch. Oh, totally. This was much, much better than most of those. You right. know, it's better than almost any video game movie, any video game movie I can think of. And that's, you, you know, know so like, that's remarkably you faint praise. Well, I, I think I think I think Pete started damning with faint praise when he said, "Well, it's good product." I think he started damning with faint praise when he's like, "It's about as good as Troy." <laughs> but, but Pete, you said you liked this, Troy. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna call it. This is the first Troy of 2009. Hector. 
Say what you want, but that love team in the tent with Brad Pitt made like $40 million just by itself. So, not that <laughs> I liked million. it, but that it was, a, it was a smart move of the producers to do it. So they made extra money. I know that Achilles never really has scenes in the Iliad where he makes tender love to the slave girl and tells her how beautiful she is. But, um, Hector! Uh, Homer, did, Homer did punch it up for time. I'm, I'm going to back Pete up on this one. I, I had fun watching Troy. Mm, thank you. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Your check is in the mail. <laughs> rage the rage of fenzel son of... <laughs> josh you were gonna say something uh and so i'll get it i'll let you maybe have the final word before we wrap up uh well pete was talking about the the commercial decisions that were made and, and the one that immediately popped to mind was whether or not making ozymandias emo was a commercial decision or not um <laughs> but we can let that we can come back to that on another day i really liked it i've read the book a lot of times and and i'm a huge fan of the book and still really enjoyed you know all nine hours of the film so i i was i was pretty happy with the whole thing <laughs> Well, I was, uh, yeah, I was happy too as a as a neophyte to the book, as someone who had just started reading it. I I thought it was an okay, thought it was an okay movie. I think like a lot of these action spectaculars where there's just a lot of force march to the plot, even if they did leave out eighty percent of what it was in the book, I thought it was really crammed with incident, you know, and and I kind of didn't get a chance to like breathe with it, and that's what I'm enjoying now in reading the book and sort of getting into the characters' relationships and understanding the sort of alliances and the, the feelings that people have about each other and, like, who's not friends and who pisses who off and why. And that's, that's all very interesting. And it was kind of lost uh, in the movie in this, in this sort of forced march through the plot. Mm. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, that will be an Overthinking It podcast for uh, today. If you want to argue with us, if you if you want to really sort of get on our case for not saying anything really about the Watchmen movie, well, no, we did. We stayed on topic a little bit. Uh, but still, you can email us at podcast at overthinkingit.com with your own review or call 20EATLOG01. That's 203-285-6401. Uh, take that uh, – take five minutes and take that listener survey on the homepage of Overthinking It. And as always, you can find this podcast – Oh, uh, uh, before I forget, someone, uh, someone, uh, a dear friend of ours, her birthday is today. So, Emily Neubauer, happy birthday to happy you. Birthday. Happy birthday, Em. Happy birthday, Emily Neubauer. Let, let's pretend that we sang a song that we would have had to pay royalties to if we would have yeah, no, broadcast. Yeah, no, we can't do that. Unfortunately, we are a, uh, we are a penniless podcast. The penniless, the overthinking yeah. and penniless podcast. Um, so we so we phoned it in for you for your birthday, Emily. Yeah. Enjoy, well, enjoy that phoning in. Yeah, and you. Uh, I mean, it won't be posted online until tomorrow. So you know. Yeah. Happy... Well, which is when they celebrate her birthday in Canada. Right. Exactly. Happy belated birthday, I guess. But uh, blame it on daylight savings. And and Emily, you or any other listener can always visit us online at www.overthinkingit.com, the site that subjects the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. It probably... Damn it! <laughs> it doesn't deserve. <laughs> I got this all wrong. <laughs>